CD2 There was a ledge leading to an invitingly open window. There was oil on the ledge, and Tepic invested several minutes in screwing small crampons into cracks in the stonework before advancing. He hung easily by the window and proceeded to take a number of small metal rods from his belt. They were threaded at the ends, and after a few seconds' brisk work, he had a rod about three feet long, on the end of which he affixed a small mirror. That revealed nothing in the gloom beyond the opening. He pulled it back and tried again, this time attaching his hood, into which he'd stuffed his gloves, to give the impression of a head cautiously revealing itself against the light. He was confident that it would pick up a bolt or a dart, but it remained resolutely unattacked. He was chilly now, despite the heat of the night. Black velvet looked good, but that was about all you could say for it. The excitement and the exertion meant he was now wearing several pints of clammy water. He advanced. There was a thin black wire on the window sill and a serrated blade screwed to the sash window above. It was the work of a moment to wedge the sash with more rods and then cut the wire. The window dropped a fraction of an inch. He grinned in the darkness. A sweep with a longer rod inside the room revealed that there was a floor apparently free of obstructions. There was also a wire at about chest height. He drew the rod back, affixed a small hook to the end, sent it back, caught the wire, and tugged. There came the dull smack of a crossbow bolt hitting old plaster. A lump of clay on the end of the same rod, pushed gently across the floor, revealed several caltraps. Tepic hauled them back and inspected them with interest. They were copper. If he'd tried the magnet technique, which was the usual method, he wouldn't have found them. He thought for a while. He had slip-on priests in his pouch. They were devilish things to prowl around a room in, but he shuffled into them anyway. Priests were metal-reinforced overshoes. They saved your souls. This is an assassin joke. Merisette was a poisons man, after all. Bloat. If he tipped them with that, Tepic would plate himself all over the walls. They wouldn't need to bury him, they'd just redecorate over the top. Bloat is extracted from the deep-sea blowfish, Singularis minutiae gigantica, which protects itself from enemies by inflating itself to many times its normal size. If taken by humans, the effect is to make every cell in the body instantaneously try to swell some 2,000 times. This is invariably fatal and very loud. The rules. Merisette would have to obey the rules. He couldn't simply kill him with no warning. He'd have to let him, by carelessness or overconfidence, kill himself. He dropped lightly onto the floor inside the room and let his eyes adjust to the darkness. A few exploratory swings with the rods detected no more wires. There was a faint crunch underfoot as a priest crushed a caltrap. In your own time, Mr. Tepic? Merisette was standing in a corner. Tepic heard the faint scratching of his pencil as he made a note. He tried to put the man out of his mind. He tried to think. There was a figure lying on a bed. It was entirely covered by a blanket. This was the last bit. This was the room where everything was decided. This was the bit the successful students never told you about. The unsuccessful ones weren't around to ask. Tepic's mind filled up with options. At a time like this, he thought, some divine guidance would be necessary. Where are you, Dad? He envied his fellow students who believed in gods that were intangible and lived a long way away on top of some mountain. A fellow could really believe in gods like that. 
but it was extremely hard to believe in a god when you saw him at breakfast every day. He unslung his crossbow and screwed its greased sections together. It wasn't a proper weapon, but he'd run out of knives and his lips were too dry for the blowpipe. There was a clicking from the corner. Merisette was idly tapping his teeth with his pencil. It could be a dummy under there. How would he know? No, it had to be a real person. You heard tales. Perhaps he could try the rods. He shook his head, raised the crossbow, and took careful aim. Whenever you like, Mr. Tepic. This was it. This was where they found out if you could kill. This was what he'd been trying to put out of his mind. He knew he couldn't. Octoday Afternoons was political expediency with Lady Tamalia, one of the few women to achieve high office in the Guild. In the lands around the Circle Sea, it was generally agreed that one way to achieve a long life was not to have a meal with her ladyship. The jewellery of one hand alone carried enough poison to inhume a small town. She was stunningly beautiful, but with the kind of calculated beauty that is achieved by a team of skilled artists, manicurists, plasterers, corsetiers and dressmakers, and three hours' solid work every morning. When she walked, there was the faint squeak of whalebone under incredible stress. The boys were learning. As she talked, they didn't watch her figure, they watched her fingers. And thus, she said, let us consider the position before the founding of the Guild. In this city, and indeed in many places elsewhere, civilization is nurtured and progresses by the dynamic interplay of interests among many large and powerful advantage cartels. In the days before the founding of the Guild, the seeking of advancement among these consortia invariably resulted in regrettable disagreements, which were terminated with extreme prejudice. These were extremely deleterious to the common interest of the city. Please understand that where disharmony rules, commerce flags. And yet, and yet, she clasped her hands to her bosom. There was a creak like a galleon beating against a gale. Clearly there was a need for an extreme yet responsible means of settling irreconcilable differences, she went on, and thus was laid the groundwork for the Guild. What bliss! The sudden peak in her voice guiltily jerked several dozen young men out of their private reveries. It must have been to have been present in those early days when men of stout moral purpose set out to forge the ultimate political tool short of warfare. How fortunate you are now in training for a guild which demands so much in terms of manners, deportment, bearing, and esoteric skills, and yet offers a power once the preserve of only the gods. Truly the world is the mollusk of your choice. Chidder translated much of this behind the stables during the dinner break. I know what terminate with extreme prejudice means, said Cheesewright loftily. It means to inhume with an axe. It bloody well doesn't, said Chidder. How do you know then? My family have been in commerce for years, said Chidder. <laughs> said Cheesewright. Commerce? Chidder never went into details about what kind of commerce it was. It had something to do with moving items around and supplying needs. But exactly what items and which needs was never made clear. 
After hitting cheese right, he explained carefully that terminate with extreme prejudice did not simply require that the victim was inhumed, preferably in an extremely thorough way, but that his associates and employees were also intimately involved, along with the business premises, the building, and a large part of the surrounding neighbourhood, so that everyone involved would know that the man had been unwise enough to make the kind of enemies who could get very angry and indiscriminate. "'Gosh!' said Arthur. "'Oh, that's nothing,' said Chidder. "'One hog's watch night, my granddad and his accounts department "'went and had a high-level business conference "'with the hubside people and fifteen bodies were never found. "'Very bad, that sort of thing. "'Upsets the business community.' "'All the business community, "'or just that part of it floating face down in the river?' "'said Tepic. "'That's the point. "'Better it should be like this,' said Chidder, shaking his head. "'You know, clean. "'That's why my father said I should join the guild.' I mean, you've got to get on with the business these days. You can't spend your whole time on public relations. The end of the crossbow trembled. He liked everything else about the school, the climbing, the music studies, the broad education. It was killing people that had been preying on his mind. He'd never killed anyone. That's the whole point, he told himself. This is where everyone finds out if you can, including you. If I get it wrong now, I'm dead. In his corner, Merisette began to hum a discouraging little tune. There was a price the Guild paid for its licence. It saw to it that there were no careless, half-hearted, or in a manner of speaking, murderously inefficient assassins. You never met anyone who'd failed the test. People did fail. You just never met them. Maybe there was one under there. Maybe it was Chidder, even, or Snoxel, or any one of the lads. They were all doing the run this evening. Maybe if he'd failed, he'd be bundled under there. Tepic tried to sight on the recumbent figure. Ahem, coughed the examiner. His throat was dry. Panic rose like a drunkard's supper. His teeth wanted to chatter. His spine was freezing. His clothes a collection of damp rags. The world slowed down. No, he wasn't going to. The sudden decision hit him like a brick in a dark alley and was nearly as surprising. It wasn't that he hated the Guild or even particularly disliked Merisette. But this wasn't the way to test anyone. It was just wrong. He decided to fail. Exactly what could the old man do about it here? And he'd fail with flair. He turned to face Merisette, looked peacefully into the examiner's eyes, extended his crossbow hand in some vague direction to his right, and pulled the trigger. There was a metallic twang. There was a click as the bolt ricocheted off a nail in the windowsill. Merisette ducked as it whirred over his head. It hit a torch bracket on the wall and went past Tepic's white face, purring like a maddened cat. There was a thud as it hit the blanket, and then silence. Thank you, Mr. Tepic. If you could bear with me just one moment. The old assassin poured over his clipboard, his lips moving. He took the pencil, which dangled from it by a bit of frayed string, and made a few marks on a piece of pink paper. I will not ask you to take it from my hands, he said. What with one thing and another? I shall leave it on the table by the door. It wasn't a particularly pleasant smile. It was thin and dried up, a smile with all the warmth long ago boiled out of it. People normally smiled like that when they'd been dead for about two years under the broiling desert sun. But at least you felt he was making the effort. Tepic hadn't moved. I've passed, he said. 
That would appear to be the case. But I am sure you know that we are not allowed to discuss the test with pupils. However, I can tell you that I personally do not approve of these modern, flashy techniques. Good morning to you. And Merisette stalked out. Tepic tottered over to the dusty table by the door and looked down, horrified at the paper. Sheer habit made him extract a pair of tweezers from his pouch in order to pick it up. It was genuine enough. There was the seal of the guild on it, and the crabbed squiggle that was undoubtedly Merisette's signature. He'd seen it often enough generally at the bottom of test papers alongside comments like, three out of ten, see me. He padded over to the figure on the bed and pulled back the blanket. It was nearly one in the morning. Ankh Morpork was just beginning to make a night of it. It had been dark up above the rooftops, in the aerial world of thieves and assassins, but down below the life of the city flowed through the streets like a tide. Tepic walked through the throng in a daze. Anyone else who tried that in the city was asking for a guided tour of the bottom of the river, but he was wearing assassins black, and the crowd just automatically opened in front of him and closed behind. Even the pickpockets kept away. You never knew what you might find. He wandered aimlessly through the gates of the guildhouse and sat down on a black marble seat with his chin on his knuckles. The fact was that his life had come to an end. He hadn't thought about what was going to happen next. He hadn't dared to think that there was going to be a next. Someone tapped him on the shoulder. As he turned, Chidder sat down beside him and wordlessly produced a slip of pink paper. Snap, he said. You pass too? said Tepic. Chidder grinned. No problem, he said. It was Nevor. No problem. He gave me a bit of trouble on the emergency drop, though. How about you? Hmm? Oh. No. Tepic tried to get a grip on himself. No trouble, he said. Heard from any of the others? No. Chidder leaned back. Cheese right'll make it, he said loftily, and young Arthur. I don't think some of the others will. We could give them twenty minutes, would you say? Tepic turned an agonised face towards him. Chiddy, I... What? When it came to it, I... What about it? Tepic looked at the cobbles. Nothing, he said. You're lucky. You just had a good airy run over the rooftops. I had the sewers and then up the garda robe in the haberdasher's tower. I had to go in and change when I got here. You had a dummy, did you? said Tepic. Good grief, didn't you? But they let us think it was going to be real, Tepic wailed. It felt real, didn't it? Yes. Well then, and, and you passed, so no problem. But didn't you wonder who might be under the blanket, who it was and why? I was worried that I might not do it properly, Chitter admitted. But then I thought, well, it's not up to me. But I... Tepic stopped. What could he do, go and explain? Somehow that didn't seem a terribly good idea. His friend slapped him on the back. Don't worry about it, he said. We've done it. And Chidder held up his thumb, pressed against the first two fingers of his right hand in the ancient salute of the assassins. A thumb pressed against two fingers and the lean figure of Dr. Cruces, head tutor, looming over the startled boys. We do not murder, he said. It was a soft voice. The doctor never raised his voice, but he had a way of giving it the pitch and spin that could make it be heard through a hurricane. We do not 
execute. We do not massacre. We never, you may be very certain, we never. We have no truck with crimes of passion or hatred or pointless gain. We do not do it for a delight in inhumation, or to feed some secret in a need, or for petty advantage, or for some cause or belief. I tell you, gentlemen, that all these reasons are in the highest degree suspect. Look into the face of a man who will kill you for a belief, and your nostrils will snuff up the scent of abomination. Hear a speech declaring a holy war, and I assure you your ears should catch the clink of evil's scales and the dragging of its monstrous tail over the purity of the language. No, we do it for the money, and because we above all must know the value of a human life, we do it for a great deal of money. There can be few cleaner motives so shorn of all pretense. Nil mortifi sine luca. Remember, no killing without payment. He paused for a moment. And always give a receipt, he added. So it's all okay, said Chidder. Tepic nodded gloomily. That was what was so likable about Chidder. He had this enviable ability to avoid thinking seriously about anything he did. A figure approached cautiously through the open gates. The gates of the Assassin's Guild were never shut. This was said to be because death was open for business all the time, but it was really because the hinges had rusted centuries before and no one had got around to doing anything about it. The light from the torch in the porter's lodge glinted off blonde curly hair. You two made it then? said Arthur, nonchalantly flourishing the slip. Arthur had changed quite a lot in seven years. The continuing failure of the great Orm to wreak organic revenge for lack of piety had cured him of his tendency to run everywhere with his coat over his head. His small size gave him a natural advantage in those areas of the craft involving narrow spaces. His innate aptitude for channeled violence had been revealed on the day when Flymo and some cronies had decided it would be fun to toss the new boys in a blanket and picked Arthur first. Ten seconds later, it had taken the combined efforts of every boy in the dormitory to hold Arthur back and prize the remains of the chair from his fingers. It had transpired that he was the son of the late Johann Ludorum, one of the greatest assassins in the history of the Guild. Sons of dead assassins always got a free scholarship. Yes, it could be a caring profession at times. There hadn't been any doubt about Arthur passing. He'd been given extra tuition and was allowed to use really complicated poisons. He was probably going to stay on for postgraduate work. They waited until the gongs of the city struck two. Clockwork was not a precise technology in Ankh-Morpork, and many of the city's various communities had their own ideas of what constituted an hour in any case, so the chimes went on bouncing around the rooftops for five minutes. When it was obvious that the city's consensus was in favour of it being well past two, the three of them stopped looking silently at their shoes. "'Well, that's it,' said Chidder. "'Poor old Cheeseright,' said Arthur. "'It's tragic when you think about it.' Yes, he owed me fourpence, agreed Chidder. Come on, I've arranged something for us. King Tepikaimon the twenty-seventh got out of bed and clapped his hands over his ears to shut out the roar of the sea. It was strong tonight. It was always louder when he was feeling out of sorts. He needed something to distract himself. He could send for Petracci, his favourite handmaiden. She was special.
Her singing always cheered him up. Life seemed so much brighter when she stopped. Or there was the sunrise. That was always comforting. It was pleasant to sit wrapped in a blanket on the topmost roof of the palace, watching the mists lift from the river as the golden flood poured over the land. You got that warm, contented feeling of another job well done, even if you didn't actually know how you'd done it. He got up, shuffled on his slippers, and padded out of his bedroom and down the wide corridor that led to the huge spiral stairs and the roof. A few rushlights illuminated the statues of the other local gods, painting the walls with shifting shadow pictures of things dog-headed, fish-bodied, spider-armed. He'd known them since childhood. His juvenile nightmares would have been quite formless without them. The sea. He'd only seen it once when he was a boy. He couldn't recall a lot about it except the size and the noise and the seagulls. They'd preyed on his mind. They seemed to have it far better worked out, seagulls. He wished he could come back as one. One day. But of course that wasn't an option if you were a pharaoh. You never came back. You didn't exactly go away, in fact. Well, what is it? said Tepic. Try it, said Chidder. Just try it. You'll never have the chance again. Seems a shame to spoil it, said Arthur gallantly, looking down at the delicate pattern on his plate. What are all the little red things? Oh, they're just radishes, said Chidder dismissively. They're not the important part. Go on. Tepic reached over with the little wooden fork and skewered a paper-thin sliver of white fish. The squishy chef was scrutinising him with the air of one watching a toddler on his first birthday. So, he realised, was the rest of the restaurant. He chewed it carefully. It was salty and faintly rubbery, with a hint of sewage outfall. Nice, said Chidder anxiously. Several nearby diners started to clap. Different, Tepic conceded, chewing. What is it? Deep-sea blowfish, said Chidder. It's all right, he said hastily, as Tepic laid down his fork meaningfully. Perfectly safe, provided every bit of stomach, liver and digestive tract is removed. That's why it costs so much. There's no such thing as a second-best blowfish, chef. It's the most expensive food in the world. People write poems about it. Could be a taste explosion, muttered Tepic, getting a grip on himself. Still, it must have been done properly, otherwise the place would now be wearing him as wallpaper. He poked carefully at the sliced roots which occupied the rest of the plate. What do these do to you? he said. Well, unless they're prepared in exactly the right way, over a six-week period, they react catastrophically with your stomach acids, said Chidder. Sorry, I thought we should celebrate with the most expensive meal we could afford. I see. Fish and chips for men, said Tepic. Do they have any vinegar in this place, said Arthur, his mouth full, and some mushy peas would go down a treat. But the wine was good. Not incredibly good, though. Not one of the great vintages, but it did explain why Tepic had gone through the whole of the day with a headache. It had been the hang-under. His friend had bought four bottles of otherwise quite ordinary white wine. The reason it was so expensive was that the grapes it was made from hadn't actually been planted yet. Counterwise wine is made from grapes belonging to that class of flora, re-annuals, that grow only in excessively high magic fields. Normal plants grow after the seeds have been planted. With reannuals, it's the other way round. Although reannual wine causes inebriation in the normal way, the action of the digestive system on its molecules causes an unusual reaction whose net effect is to thrust a 
backwards in time to a point some hours before the wine is drunk. Hence the saying, have a hair of the dog that's going to bite you. Light moves slowly, lazily, on the disc. It's in no hurry to get anywhere. Why bother? At light speed, everywhere is the same place. King Tepikaimon the twenty-seventh watched the golden disc float over the edge of the world. A flight of cranes took off from the mist-covered river. He'd been conscientious, he told himself. No one had ever explained to him how one made the sun come up and the river flood and the corn grow. How could they? He was the god, after all. He should know. But he didn't. So he'd just gone through life, hoping like hell that it would all work properly. And that seemed to have done the trick. The trouble was, though, that if it didn't work, he wouldn't know why not. A recurrent nightmare was of Dios, the high priest, shaking him awake one morning, only it wouldn't be a morning, of course, and of every light in the palace burning, and an angry crowd muttering in the starlit darkness outside, and everyone looking expectantly at him. And all he'd be able to say was, Sorry. It terrified him. How easy to imagine the ice forming on the river, the eternal frost rhyming the palm trees and snapping off the leaves, which would smash when they hit the frozen ground, and the birds dropping lifeless from the sky. Shadows swept over him. He looked up through eyes misted with tears at a grey and empty horizon, his mouth dropping open in horror. He stood up, flinging aside the blanket, and raised both hands in supplication. But the sun had gone. He was the god. This was his job. It was the only thing he was here to do, and he had failed the people. Now he could hear in his mind's ear the anger of the crowd, a booming roar that began to fill his ears until the rhythm became insistent and familiar, until it reached the point where it pressed in no longer but drew him out, into that salty blue desert where the sun always shone and sleek shapes wheeled across the sky. The pharaoh raised himself on his toes, threw back his head, spread his wings, and leapt. As he soared into the sky, he was surprised to hear a thump behind him, and the sun came out from behind the clouds. Later on, the pharaoh felt awfully embarrassed about it. The three new assassins staggered slowly along the street, constantly on the point of falling over but never quite reaching it, trying to sing A Wizard's Staff Has a Knob on the End, in harmony, or at least in the same key. "'Tis big and it's round and it weighs three to the... sang Chidder. "'Ugh, blast! What have I stepped in?' "'Anyone know where we are?' said Arthur. "'We... we were headed for the Guildhouse,' said Tepic. "'Only must have took the wrong way. "'That's the river up ahead. They can smell it.' Caution penetrated Arthur's armour of alcohol. "'Could be dangerous, people around this time of night, he hazarded. Yeah, said Chidder with satisfaction. Us. <laughs> Got ticket to prove it. Got tests and everything. Like to see anyone try anything with us. Right, agreed Tappic, leaning against him for support of a sort. We'll slit them from what's the name to thingy. Right. They lurched uncertainly out onto the brass bridge. In fact, there were dangerous people around in the pre-dawn shadows, and currently these were some twenty paces behind them. The complex system of criminal guilds had not actually made Ankh-Morpork a safer place, it just rationalised its dangers and put them on a regular and reliable footing. 
The major guilds policed the city with more thoroughness and certainly more success than the old watch had ever managed, and it was true that any freelance and unlicensed thief caught by the Thieves' Guild would soon find himself remanded in custody for social inquiry reports, plus having his knees nailed together. When the Thieves' Guild declared a general strike in the year of the engaging sloth, the actual level of crime doubled. However, there were always a few spirits who would venture a precarious living outside the lawless, and five men of this description were closing cautiously on the trio to introduce them to this week's special offer, a cutthroat, plus theft and burial in the river mud of your choice. People normally keep out of the way of assassins because of an instinctive feeling that killing people for very large sums of money is disapproved of by the gods, who generally prefer people to be killed for very small sums of money or for free, and could result in hubris, which is the judgment of the gods. The gods are great believers in justice, at least as far as it extends to humans, and have been known to dispense it so enthusiastically that people miles away are turned into a cruet. However, Assassin's Black doesn't frighten everyone, and in certain sections of society there is a distinct cachet in killing an assassin. It's rather like smashing a sixer in Conkers. Broadly, therefore, the three, even now lurching across the deserted planks of the brass bridge, were dead-drunk assassins, and the men behind them were bent on inserting the significant comma. Chidder wandered into one of the heraldic wooden hippopotami that lined the seaward edge of the bridge, bounced off, and flopped over the parapet. One of the two legends about the founding of Ankh-Morpork relates that the two orphaned brothers who built the city were in fact found and suckled by a hippopotamus, literally Origeple, although some historians hold that this is a mistranslation of Orejaple, a type of glass-fronted drinks cabinet. Eight heraldic hippos line the bridge facing out to sea. It is said that if danger ever threatens the city, they will run away. The other legend, not normally recounted by citizens, is that at an even earlier time, a group of wise men survived a flood sent by the gods by building a huge boat and on this boat they took two of every type of animal then existing on the disc, and after some weeks the combined manure was beginning to weigh the boat low in the water. So, the story runs, they tipped it over the side and called it Ankh Morpork. feel sick, announced Chidder. Feel free, said Arthur. That's what the river's for. Tepic sighed. He was attached to rivers, which he felt were designed to have water lilies on top and crocodiles underneath. And the ark always depressed him, because if you put a water lily in it, it would dissolve. It drained the huge silty plains all the way to the Ramtop Mountains, and by the time it had passed through Ankh-Morpork, population one million, it could only be called a liquid because it moved faster than the land around it. Actually being sick in it would probably make it on average marginally cleaner. He stared down at the thin trickle that oozed between the central pillars, and then raised his gaze to the grey horizon. "'Sun's coming up,' he announced. "'Don't remember eating that,' muttered Chidder. Tepic stepped back, and a knife ripped past his nose, and buried it. Three assassins instinctively drew together. "'You come near me, you'll really regret it,' moaned Chidder, clutching his stomach. "'The cleaning bill will be horrible.' "'Well, now,' "'What have we here?' said the leading thief. "'This is the sort of thing that gets said in these circumstances.' Th "'Thieves' Guild, are you?' said Arthur. "'No,' 
said the leader. We're the small and unrepresentative minority that gets the rest a bad name. Give us your valuables and weapons, please. This won't make any difference to the outcome, you understand. It's just that corpse robbing is unpleasant and degrading. We could rush them, said Tepic, uncertainly. Don't look at me, said Arthur. I couldn't find my ass with an atlas. You'll be really sorry when I'm sick, said Chidder. Tepic was aware of the throwing knives stuffed up either sleeve, and that the chances of him being able to get hold of one in time still to be alive to throw it were likely to be very small. At times like this, religious solace is very important. He turned and looked towards the sun, just as it withdrew from the cloud banks of the dawn. There was a tiny dot in the centre of it. The late King Tepikaimon the twenty-seventh opened his eyes. "'I was flying,' he whispered. "'I remember the feeling of wings. "'What am I doing here?' "'He tried to stand up. "'There was a temporary feeling of heaviness, "'which suddenly dropped away "'so that he rose to his feet almost without any effort. "'He looked down to see what had caused it. "'Oh, dear,' he said. "'The culture of the River Kingdom "'had a lot to say about death and what happened afterwards. "'In fact, it had very little to say about life.' regarding it as a sort of inconvenient prelude to the main event, and something to be hurried through as politely as possible, and therefore the pharaoh reached the conclusion that he was dead very quickly. The sight of his mangled body on the sand below him played a major part in this. There was a greyness about everything. The landscape had a ghostly look, as though he could walk straight through it. Of course, he thought, I probably can. He rubbed the analogue of his hands. Well, this is it. This is where it gets interesting. This is where I really start to live. Behind him, a voice said, Good morning. The king turned. Hello, he said. You'd be... Death, said Death. The king looked surprised. I understood that Death came as a three-headed giant scarab beetle, he said. Death shrugged. Well, now you know. What's that thing in your hand? This. It's a scythe. Strange-looking object, isn't it? said the pharaoh. I thought death carried the flail of mercy and the reaping hook of justice. Death appeared to think about this. What in? he said. Pardon? Are we still talking about a giant beetle? Ah, in his mandibles, I suppose. "'but I think he's got arms in one of the frescoes in the palace.' "'The king hesitated. "'Seems a bit silly, really, now I come to tell someone. "'I mean, a giant beetle with arms. "'And the head of an ibis, I seem to recall.' "'Death sighed. "'He was not a creature of time, "'and therefore past and future were all one to him. "'But there had been a period when he'd made an effort to appear "'in whatever form the client expected.' This foundered because it was usually impossible to know what the client was expecting until after they were dead. And then he decided that since no one ever really expected to die anyway, he might as well please himself, and he'd henceforth stuck to the familiar black cowled robe, which was neat and very familiar and acceptable everywhere, like the best credit cards. Anyway, said the pharaoh, I expect we'd better be going. Where to? Don't you know? I am here only to see that you die at the appointed time. What happens next is up to you. Well, 
The king automatically scratched his chin. I suppose I have to wait until they've done all the preparations and so forth. Mummified me. And build a bloody pyramid. Hmm. Do I have to hang around here to wait for all that? I assume so. Death clicked his fingers, and a magnificent white horse ceased its grazing on some of the garden greenery and trotted towards him. Oh, well, I think I shall look away. They take all the squishy inside bits out first, you know. A look of faint worry crossed his face. Things that had seemed perfectly sensible when he was alive seemed a little bit suspect now that he was dead. It's to preserve the body so that it may begin life anew in the netherworld, he added, in a slightly perplexed voice. And then they wrap you in bandages. At least that seems logical, he rubbed his nose. But then they put all this food and drink in the pyramid with you. Hmm, bit weird, really. Where are one's internal organs at this point? That's the funny thing, isn't it? They're in a jar in the next room, said the king, his voice edged with doubt. We even put a damn great model cart in Dad's pyramid. His frown deepened. Solid wood it was, he said, half to himself, with gold leaf all over it, and four wooden bullocks to pull it. Then we whacked a damn great stone over the door. He tried to think and found that it was surprisingly easy. New ideas were pouring into his mind in a cold, clear stream. They had to do with the play of light on the rocks, the deep blue of the sky, the manifold possibilities of the world that stretched away on every side of him. Now that he didn't have a body to importune him with its insistent demands, the world seemed full of astonishments. But unfortunately, among the first of them was the fact that much of what you thought was true now seemed as solid and reliable as marsh gas and also that just as he was fully equipped to enjoy the world, he was going to be buried inside a pyramid. When you die, the first thing you lose is your life. The next thing is your illusions. I can see you have got a lot to think about, said Death, mounting up. And now, if you'll excuse me... Hang on a moment. Yes? When I fell, I could have sworn that I was flying. That part of you that was divine did fly, naturally. You are now fully mortal. Mortal? Take it from me. I know about these things. Oh. Look, there's quite a few questions I'd like to ask. There always are. I'm sorry. Death clapped his heels to his horse's flanks and vanished. The king stood there as several servants came hurrying along the palace wall, slowed down as they approached his corpse, and advanced with caution. Uh, uh, are you all right, oh, jeweled master of the sun? One of them ventured. No, I'm not, snapped the king, who was having some of his basic assumptions about the universe severely rattled, and that never puts anyone in a good mood. I'm by way of being dead just at the moment. Amazing, isn't it? He said bitterly. "'Can you hear us, O divine bringer of the morning?' inquired the other servant, tiptoeing closer. "'I've just fallen off a hundred-foot wall onto my head. What do you think?' shouted the king. "'I don't think he can hear us, Yachmet,' said the other servant. "'Listen,' said the king, whose urgency was equalled only by the servant's total inability to hear anything he was saying. "'You must find my son and tell him to forget about the pyramid business, at least until I've thought about it a bit.' There are one or two points which seem a little self-contradictory about the whole afterlife arrangements, and... Shall I shout? said Yachmet. I don't think you can shout loud enough. 
I think he's dead. Yachmet looked down at the stiffening corpse. Bloody hell, he said eventually. Well, that's tomorrow up the spout for a start. The sun, unaware that it was making its farewell performance, continued to drift smoothly above the rim of the world, and out of it, moving faster than any bird should be able to fly, a seagull bore down on Ankh Morpork, on the brass bridge, and eight still figures on one staring face. Seagulls were common enough, Ankh, but as this one flew over the group, it uttered one long, guttural scream that caused three of the thieves to drop their knives. Nothing with feathers ought to have been able to make a noise like that. It had claws in it. The bird wheeled in a tight circle and fluttered to a perch on a convenient wooden hippo, where it glared at the group with mad red eyes. The leading thief tore his fascinated gaze away from it, just as he heard Arthur say, quite pleasantly, "'This is a number two throwing knife. I got ninety-six percent for throwing knives. Which eyeball don't you need?' The leader stared at him. As far as the other young assassins were concerned, he noticed, one was still staring fixedly at the seagull, while the other was busy being noisily sick over the parapet. "'There's only one of you,' he said. "'There's five of us.' "'But soon there'll be only four of you,' said Arthur. Moving slowly like someone in a daze, Tepic reached out his hand to the seagull. With any normal seagull, this would have resulted in the loss of a thumb, but the creature hopped onto it, with the smug air of the master returning to the old plantation. It seemed to make the thieves increasingly uneasy. Arthur's smile wasn't helping either. "'That's a nice bird,' said the leader, in the inanely cheerful tones of the extremely worried. Tepic was dreamily stroking its bullet head. "'I think it would be a good idea if you went away.' said Arthur, as the bird shuffled sideways onto Tepic's wrist. Gripping with webbed feet, thrusting out its wings to maintain its balance, it should have looked clownish, but instead looked full of hidden power, as though it was an eagle's secret identity. When it opened its mouth, revealing a ridiculous purple bird tongue, there was a suggestion that this seagull could do a lot more than menace a seaside tomato sandwich. "'Is it magic?' said one of the thieves, and was quickly hushed. "'We'll be going, then,' said the leader. Uh, "'Sorry about the uh, misunderstanding.' Tepic gave him a warm, unseeing smile. Then they all heard the insistent little noise. Six pairs of eyes swivelled around and down. Chidders were already in position. Below them, pouring darkly across the dehydrated mud, the ark was rising. Dios, first minister and high priest among high priests, wasn't a naturally religious man. It wasn't a desirable quality in a high priest. It affected your judgment, made you unsound. Start believing in things and the whole business became a farce. Not that he had anything against belief. People needed to believe in gods, if only because it was hard to believe in people. The gods were necessary. He just required that they stayed out of the way and let him get on with things. Mind you, it was a blessing that he had the looks for it. If your genes saw fit to give you a tall frame, a bald head, and a nose you could plough rocks with, they probably had a definite aim in mind. He instinctively distrusted people to whom religion came easily. The naturally religious, he felt, were unstable, and given to wandering in the desert, and having revelations, as if the gods would lower themselves to that sort of thing. And they never got anything done. They started thinking that rituals weren't important. They started thinking that you could talk to the gods direct. 
Dios knew, with the kind of rigid and unbending certainty you could pivot the world on, that the gods of Jelly Baby liked rituals as much as anyone else. After all, a god who was against ritual would be like a fish who was against water. He sat on the steps of the throne with his staff across his knees and passed on the king's orders. The fact that they were not currently being issued by any king was not a problem. Dios had been high priest now for, well, more years than he cared to remember. He knew quite clearly what orders a sensible king would be giving, and he gave them. Anyway, the face of the sun was on the throne, and that was what mattered. It was a solid, gold, head-enveloping mask to be worn by the current ruler on all public occasions. Its expression, to the sacrilegious, was one of good-natured constipation. For thousands of years, it had symbolised kingship in De Jelly Baby. It had also made it very difficult to tell kings apart. This was extremely symbolic as well, although no one could remember what of. There was a lot of that sort of thing in the old kingdom. The staff across his knees, for example, with its very symbolic snakes entwined symbolically around an allegorical camel prod. The people believed this gave the high priest power over the gods and the dead. But this was probably a metaphor, i.e. a lie. Dios shifted position. "'Has the king been ushered to the room of going forth?' he said. The circle of lesser high priests nodded. "'Dil the embalmer is attending upon him at this instant, O Dios.' "'Very well. And the builder of pyramids has been instructed?' Hoot Kumi, the high priest of Kefin, the two-faced god of gateways, stepped forward. "'I took the liberty of attending to that myself, O Dios,' he purred. Dios tapped his fingers on his staff. "'Yes,' he said. "'I have no doubt that you did.' It was widely expected by the priesthood that Kumi would be the one to succeed Dios in the event of Dios ever actually dying, although hanging around waiting for Dios to die had never seemed to be a rewarding occupation. The only dissenting opinion was that of Dios himself, who, if he had any friends, would probably have confided in them certain conditions that would need to apply first, viz. blue moons, aerial pigs, and he, Dios, being seen in hell, he would probably have added that the only difference between Kumi and a sacred crocodile was the crocodile's basic honesty of purpose. Very well, he said. If I may remind your lordship, said Kumi, the faces of the other priests went a nice safe blank as Dios glared. Yes, Kumi. The prince, O oh Dios, has he been summoned? No, said Dios. Then how will he know, said Kumi. He will know, said Dios firmly. How will this be? He will know. And now you are all dismissed. Go away. See to your gods. They scurried out, leaving Dios alone on the steps. It had been his accustomed position for so long that he'd polished a groove in the stonework into which he fitted exactly. Of course the prince would know. It was part of the neatness of things but in the grooves of his mind, ground deeply by years of ritual and due observance, Dios detected a certain uneasiness. It was not at home in there. Uneasiness was something that happened to other people. He hadn't got where he was today by allowing room for doubt. Yet there was a tiny thought back there, a tiny certainty, that there was going to be trouble with this new king. Well, the boy would soon learn. They all learned. He shifted position and winced. The aches and pains were back, and he couldn't allow that. They got in the way of his duty, 
and his duty was a sacred trust. He'd have to visit the necropolis again. Tonight. He's not himself, you can see that. Who is he then? said Chidder. They splashed unsteadily down the street, not drunkenly this time, but with the awkward gait of two people trying to do the steering for three. Tepic was walking, but not in a way that gave them any confidence that his mind was having any part of it. Around them, doors were being thrown open, curses were being cursed, there was the sound of furniture being dragged up to first-floor rooms. "'Must have been a hell of a storm up in the mountains,' said Arthur. "'It doesn't usually flood like this, even in the spring.' "'Maybe we should burn some feathers under his nose,' suggested Chidder. "'That bloody seagull would be favourite,' Arthur growled. "'What seagull?' "'You saw it?' "'Well, what about it? You did see it, didn't you?' Uncertainty flickered its dark flame in Arthur's eyes. The seagull had disappeared in all the excitement. "'My attention was a bit occupied,' said Chidder diffidently. "'It must have been those mint wafers they served with the coffee. I thought they were a bit off.' "'Definitely a touch eldritch, that bird,' said Arthur. "'Look, let's put him down somewhere while I empty the water out of my boots, can we?' There was a bakery nearby, its doors thrown open so that the trays of new loaves could cool in the early morning. They propped Tepic against the wall. "'He looks as though someone hit him on the head,' said Chidder. "'No one did, did they?' Arthur shook his head. Tepic's face was locked in a gentle grin. Whatever his eyes were focused on wasn't occupying the usual set of dimensions. "'We ought to get him back to the Guild and into the sanatorium,' he stopped. There was a peculiar rustling sound behind him. The loaves of bread were bouncing gently on their trays. One or two of them vibrated onto the floor, where they spun around like overturned beetles. Then, their crusts cracking open like eggshells, they sprouted hundreds of green shoots. Within a few seconds, the trays were waving stands of young corn, their heads already beginning to fill out and bend over. Through them marched Chidder and Arthur, poker-faced, doing the hundred-metre nonchalant walk, with Tepic held rigidly between them. "'Is it him doing all this?' "'I've got a feeling that—' Arthur looked behind them, just in case any angry bakers had come out and spotted such aggressively wholemeal produce, and stopped so suddenly that the other two swung around him like a rudder. They looked thoughtfully at the street. "'Not something you see every day, that,' said Chidder at last. "'You mean the way there's grass and stuff growing up everywhere he puts his feet?' "'Yes.' Their eyes met. As one, they looked down at Tepic's shoes. He was already ankle-deep in greenery, which was cracking the centuries-old cobbles in its urgency. Without speaking a word, they gripped his elbows and lifted him into the air. "'The sand,' said Arthur. "'The sand,' agreed Chidder. But they both knew even then that this was going to involve more than a hot poultice. The doctor sat back. Fairly straightforward, he said, thinking quickly. A case of mortis portalis taculatum, with complications. What's that mean? said Chidder. In layman's terms, the doctor sniffed, he's as dead as a doornail. What are the complications? The doctor looked shifty. He's still breathing, he said. Look, his pulse is nearly humming and he's got a temperature you could fry eggs on. He hesitated, aware that this was probably too straightforward and easily understood. Medicine was a new art on the disc and wasn't going to get anywhere if people could understand it. Pyrocerebrum oerf culinary, he said, after working it out in his head. 
Well, what can you do about it? said Arthur. Nothing. He's dead. All the medical tests prove it. So uh, bury him, uh, keep him nice and cool, and tell him to come and see me next week. In daylight, for preference. But he's still breathing. These are just reflex actions that might easily confuse the layman, said the doctor airily. Chidder sighed. He suspected that the Guild, who after all had an unrivalled experience of sharp knives and complex organic compounds, were much better at elementary diagnostics than were the doctors. The Guild might kill people, but at least it didn't expect them to be grateful for it. Tepic opened his eyes. I must go home, he said. Dead, is he? said Chidder. The doctor was a credit to his profession. It's not unusual for a corpse to make distressing noises after death, he said valiantly, which can upset relatives and... Tepic sat bolt upright. Also, muscular spasms in the stiffening body can in certain circumstances, the doctor began, but his heart wasn't in it any more. Then an idea occurred to him. It's a rare and mysterious ailment, he said, which is going around a lot at the moment. It's caused by, um, uh, by, by something so small it can't be detected in any way whatsoever, he finished, with a self-congratulatory smile on his face. It was a good one, he had to admit. He'd have to remember it. Thank you very much, said Chidder, opening the door and ushering him through. Next time we're feeling really well, we'll definitely call you in. It's probably a walrus said the doctor, as he was gently but firmly propelled out of the room. He's caught a walrus. There's a lot of it going. Uh... The door slammed shut. Tepic swung his legs off the bed and clutched at his head. I've got to go home, he repeated. Why? said Arthur. Don't know. The kingdom wants me. You seem to be taken pretty bad there, Arthur began. Tepic waved his hands dismissively. "'Look,' he said, "'please, I don't want anyone sensibly pointing out things. "'I don't want anyone telling me I should rest. "'None of it matters. "'I will be back in the kingdom as soon as possible. "'It's not a case of must, you understand. "'I will. "'And you can help me, Chiddy.' "'How? "'Your father has an extremely fast vessel he uses for smuggling,' "'said Tepic flatly. "'He will lend it to me in exchange for favourable consideration "'of future trading opportunities. "'If we leave inside the hour, it will do the journey in plenty of time.' My father is an honest trader. On the contrary, 70% of his income last year was from undeclared trading in the following commodities. Tepic's eyes stared into nothingness. From illegal transport of galanes and lucars, 9%. From night running of untaxed... Well, 30% honest, Chidder admitted. Which is a lot more honest than most. You'd better tell me how you know. Extremely quickly. I don't know said Tepic. When I was asleep, it seemed I knew everything, everything about everything. I think my father is dead. Oh, said Chidder. Gosh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's not like that. It's what he would have wanted. I think he was rather looking forward to it. In our family, death is when you really start to, you know, enjoy life. I expect he's rather enjoying it. In fact, the pharaoh was sitting on a spare slab in the ceremonial preparation room, watching his own soft bits being carefully removed from his body and put into the special canopic jars. This is not a sight often seen by people, at least not by people in a position to take a thoughtful interest. 
He was rather upset. Although he was no longer officially inhabiting his body, he was still attached to it by some sort of occult bond, and it is hard to be very happy at seeing two artisans up to the elbows in bits of you. The jokes aren't funny either. Not when you are, as it were, the butt. Luke, Master Dill, said Gurn, a plump, red-faced young man who the king had learned was the new apprentice. Luke, right, watch this, watch this. Luke, your name in lights, get it? <laughs> your name in lights, see? Just put them in the jar, boy, said Dill wearily. And while we're on the subject, I didn't think much of the Gottler gear routine either. Sorry, master. And pass me over a number three brain hook while you're up that end, will you? Coming right up, master, said Gurn. And don't jog me. This is a fiddly bit. Sure thing. The king craned nearer. Gurn rummaged around at his end of the job and then gave a long, low whistle. Whoo! When you look at the colour of this, he said, you wouldn't think so, would you? Is it something they eat, master? Dill sighed. Just put it in the pot, Gurn. Right you are, master. Master? Yes, lad. Which bit's got the god in it, master? Dill squinted up the king's nostril, trying to concentrate. That gets sorted out before he comes down here, he said patiently. I wondered, said Gurn, because there's not a jar for it, you see. No, there wouldn't be. It'd have to be a rather strange jar, Gurn. Gurn looked a bit disappointed. Oh, he said, so he's just ordinary then, is he? In a strictly organic sense, said Dill, his voice slightly muffled. Our mum said he was all right as a king, said Gurn. What do you think? Dill paused with a jar in his hand and seemed to give the conversation some thought for the first time. Never think about it until they come down here, he said. I suppose he was better than most. Nice pair of lungs, clean kidneys, good big sinuses, which is what I always look for in a king. He looked down and delivered his professional judgment. Uh, pleasure to work with, really. Our mum said his heart was in the right place said Gurn. The king, hovering dismally in the corner, gave a gloomy nod. Yes, he thought. Jar three, top shelf. Dill wiped his hands on a rag and sighed. Possibly thirty-five years in the funeral business, which had given him a steady hand, a philosophic manner, and a keen interest in vegetarianism, had also granted him powers of hearing beyond the ordinary, because he was almost persuaded that right beside his ear, someone else sighed too. The king wandered sadly over to the other side of the room and stared at the dull liquid of the preparation vat. Funny that. When he was alive, it had all seemed so sensible, so obvious. Now he was dead, it looked like a huge waste of effort. It was beginning to annoy him. He watched Dill and his apprentice tidy up, burn some ceremonial resins, lift him, it, up, carry it respectfully across the room and slide it gently into the oily embrace of the preservative. Tepikaimon the 27th gazed into the murky depths at his own body lying sadly on the bottom like the last pickled gherkin in the jar. He raised his eyes to the sacks in the corner. They were full of straw. He didn't need telling what was going to be done with it.
End of CD 2